As I, um, in these past few weeks, have been in prayer about uh, a message for Resurrection Sunday, it's been on my heart to back up a bit and look at the crucifixion. Uh, as we know, Good Friday was a couple of days ago. And I want to start there uh, because it's important that we understand the events that took place while Jesus was on the cross. We're going to look this morning at the seven sayings, the seven statements that Jesus made while he hung on the cross. He said very little on the day of his crucifixion. Remember, he was silent before Pilate. Uh, He had not much to say until he got onto the cross. And then these last seven distinct statements, which God the Son chose during those six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. were packed. They were packed with meaning, with insight, uh, with relevance, and with application for us. Very, very important. They demonstrate, uh, among other things, they demonstrate the consistency of who Jesus was and is both in his life and in his teachings and also in his death. So last week, as we wrapped up, we looked at uh, Jesus. uh, We looked at the parable. Remember, we looked at the parable of the minas or the parable of the stewards. And then we went right into Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, on that donkey's colt. And then we wrapped up looking at that week, that this what we refer to as Passion Week or Holy Week. Uh, we looked at beginning on Sunday when he rode into town and then ending uh, with him before Pilate on Friday morning. He'd been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and been taken in, uh, before the Roman procurator, Pilate, and uh, Pilate had tried to dispose of the matter without getting too heated up, and the Jews weren't having it, and he sent him off to be scourged, which uh, a Roman scourging was not like just getting whipped. That was usually a whip that had pieces of leather on it that were had a sheep bone and, and metal attached to the end, so that when that whip contacted uh, skin the skin would give way and Jesus would have lost a great deal of blood. He would have looked way different than the Jesus you see in most Hollywood movies. Probably the Passion of the Christ most accurately portrayed what took place with his body. Uh, And they marched him back out and he was dying at that point. And yet, as we'll look at, he hung on to his life until it was time for him to lay it down. And Pilate said, behold, your king. That's where we stopped last week. And then after that, uh, the Jews, again, uh, incited the crowd to to cry out, crucify him. Likely a lot of the same crowd that had been there singing Hosanna the Sunday before. And that's where we pick it up because he was taken from there, the Praetorium, the place where Pilate was, to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Uh, there's still an impression in the hillside where I believe this took place. 
where you can clearly see a skull uh, in, in the shaded area of the way that this hillside is. It was breathtaking when Stacy and I went to Israel a few years ago to stand there and look at this thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's right over a bus parking lot. But um, uh, he was taken off to be crucified. While he was on the cross, he had some things to say. And they weren't just, folks, they weren't willy-nilly. They weren't just things that he said offhandedly. These were powerful. Again, they were intentional statements that conveyed meaning and depth. I'm going to get right into it. In statement number one, or saying number one, Jesus, there on the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Uh, Quoting from Luke chapter 23. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't begin with, I'm thirsty. He doesn't begin with, why have you forsaken me? He begins with, forgive them. These first, uh, uh, the the, the first several sayings that Jesus says from the cross uh, show that he was thinking of others right through the end of his life. He had taught that. He had taught that repeatedly. And we know that as children of the king, that he, that in honoring him and glorifying him, he calls upon us to go low, to, to, to make ourselves lesser, to put other people as more important than ourselves. And, and he's modeling that. Even while he's experiencing the horrific pain of, pers- of, of crucifixion, he's praying for the very people who were responsible for, at that moment, murdering him. He had done nothing wrong, so it was murder. Even though it was through six illegal trials, he's praying for the people that are doing this to him. Uh, he'd been scourged, as I mentioned, mocked, beaten, crowned with thorns, marched through the city carrying his own cross, the cross beam. Then the soldiers had nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. They gambled over his garments, making a complete mockery of him. And yet, what I think is fascinating, folks, is that Jesus predicted all of this ahead of time. Every bit of it. In the details, in the minutia. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Mark writes, Behold, we're, uh, he's talking about Jesus here. Jesus is saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day, he'll rise again. So as our Lord hung there on that cross, people yelled. The the leaders scoffed. Yet still, Jesus looked on them with compassion he prayed for them. And, and folks, his prayer would not be unanswered. Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given, uh, the Spirit would fall and conviction would flow. Remember, Jesus told the, them, told us, the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. One aspect of the, the Spirit's ministry. In Acts chapter 2, Uh, We see Peter having just weeks before been cowering at the enemy's fire, denying that Jesus was the Christ, that he had been with Jesus, denying him, even with a curse, here, now filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and he begins to preach. 
And he preaches to the, the city of Jerusalem, essentially, the, the people that had come out, turned out for the feast of Pentecost. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. There it is. This was planned from the foundations of the world. He says, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So essentially, Peter stands up. We have, like we looked at last week in the triumphal entry where Jesus rides into town. The people are celebrating, they're rejoicing. His reception looks great on the surface, But by Friday, they would have realized that this wasn't the Messiah that they expected. He hadn't thrown off Rome. He hadn't set up his kingdom. And so the same crowd that was at that point screaming crucify, here's Peter 50 days out on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit's given and he preaches, the Spirit convicts. And he convicts their hearts. Dropping down uh, to verse 36 in the same chapter in Acts chapter 2. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. He pokes them again, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why were they cut to the heart? Because they realized that he was the Christ. They realized that they were the ones who had the wrong idea about who he was. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what, what shall we do? They were broken. And Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord will call. That's us. We are part of the as many as the Lord will call here. I don't know if you're watching online or you're here this morning, if you have a relationship with Christ that's current and active and alive. If you do, praise God. If you don't, you can fix that very, very simply. You can simply renew your commitment to Christ or you can commit to him for the first time. It's a very simple prayer. The Lord has been walking away from you all this time. As he said, repent. You turn. What that means is to change your mind. He says, change your mind about God. Turn, stop walking away from him. Start walking with him and allow him to work in your heart, to work in your life. That's the plan of God. That's how this applies to you and I. We are those who were afar off. And now we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Think about it. If you had been jeering him in the crowd that day, or a Roman soldier torturing him, or a priest who was condemning him, and then you later realize that he actually was the Messiah. What would that do? Have you ever been in a place where you realized that something you said or something that you did was profoundly wrong? And, and the full weight of that has come crashing. It has, it, for me, many times in my life. And the weight of that has come, just come crashing down. The clarity that comes is like, man, I was so wrong. That's what's happening with these people. 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ that day. 
as a result of Peter being used of God to speak truth into their souls. The second statement that we see here is, uh, he says to the thief on the cross, he says, assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise, the paradise of God. As we know, there were two thieves that were crucified, one on each side of the Lord. And after hours of mocking, jeering him, one began to see something different about Jesus. He actually turned and he rebuked the other thief. In Luke chapter 23, we read, it says that one of the criminal, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Oh, by the way, us too. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, we are hanging here because of what we've done. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He recognized that Jesus was the Christ. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, kurios, that's the Greek word for Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise, heaven. This guy experienced a change of heart in the last moments of his life. This thief found grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus. The other would die in his sins. Those are the only two choices, folks. There's no gray area. Jesus said, "You, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not with me, you're opposed to me. Where is your heart this morning? We'll talk about the thief on the cross a little bit later. Romans chapter 3 tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. And here again, we see Jesus placing the welfare of others above his own. As his life was waning, as his life was literally flowing out of him onto the ground, his blood was flowing. He deals with this, this lowly thief, granting him salvation. The third statement we see here is he says, woman, Behold your son. And then he looks over at, and the way that John writes in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's me, (laughs) is what he's saying. (laughs) Behold your mother. Looking back, think about Mary here. From the moment that the angel Gabriel had appeared to her, telling her in Luke chapter one, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Go from that to this. Think of the confusion of this moment, seeing her son hanging there, knowing he was dying knowing there was nothing she could do with a mother's heart. Think of how that would that would just be tearing at her. Would she be feeling blessed among women at this moment? Probably not. This was also the fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy concerning Mary. When he told her after Jesus was born, he said, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. That sword was piercing her heart in this moment. And the tender words of her son, I picture him just looking down at her, his eyes meeting hers, saying, woman, behold your son. And 
and, and behold your mother to John. Great comfort in those words. Great healing as she would reflect back on those words in time to come. For this moment, utter agony. Now, a couple of things about this. Evidently, Joseph had died. We don't see him after. Remember when Jesus was at the temple as a kid, he, at eight years old as a child, and his parents were in the caravan. They're heading home, and pretty soon they realize that he's not with them. And they go back. They find him in the temple, and he says, well, I've been here. I've been, where did you think I would be? I was, I've essentially been about my father's business. He was teaching people with authority at eight years old. Amazing. Remarkable. But Joseph, we don't see him in the narratives of any of the gospels after this point. So it's pretty well, you could pretty well count on the fact that he's off the scene, that he had likely died. As the eldest child, her welfare, Mary's welfare had fallen to Jesus. He was the oldest. She went on and had several other children after him, his half brothers, sisters. So now again, Jesus continuing to think of others. He, here he seeks his mother's continuing care in transferring the responsibility that he had carried onto John. What's interesting about this is typically a dying son would commit his mother into the care of another member of his immediate family. Jesus didn't. In this case, it would have been James or Jude or another male sibling. Both of those guys have books in the Bible, but they didn't come to faith until later, until after he had been glorified, after he had been crucified, resurrected. They didn't have a relationship with him as Messiah. They didn't, they had not embraced his claims or committed to his mission when he died. Likely, Jesus was choosing John out of a profound spiritual concern for his mother. And through his ministry, Jesus consistently placed more emphasis on the family of God than on one's own physical family. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 50, he says, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Essentially saying there is a higher place for the family of God than your own physical family. And uh, there are members of my family that I don't have the closeness of a relationship as I do with many of you. That's just a spiritual thing. It's, a, it's part of the dynamic of being children of the king because we are his children. You are my brothers and sisters. As we move on here, the, the fourth, and this is an awe-inspiring word, the, the fourth word was probably spoken by Jesus as the mysterious supernatural three-hour darkness was lifting, uh, we're told that, again, that he was on the cross for, for six hours, uh, from the third hour to the ninth hour. But you've got to understand Jewish days. A Jewish day began at sunrise, ended at sunset, the way that they measured the day. And so at sunrise, from there till nine o'clock in the morning would be the third hour. At noon, it would be the sixth hour, and we know that Jesus gave up his spirit at the ninth hour, which would be three in the afternoon. So during that time, these first three statements were likely spoken during that first three-hour period. From noon until three, we're told, God's word tells us that there was a profound, again, a, a, just a significant darkness, and I believe it was a tangible darkness that fell over the whole land. And there were some amazing things that took place. Uh, time doesn't Give me the opportunity to go into those in any depth. But these three statements 
that we've just looked at were likely during the first three hours. As the darkness was lifting, Jesus, this fourth saying that he made is Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In English, it's translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is probably the most difficult for us to comprehend. Uh, one of the ways that it, it helps to understand it, in First John chapter 4, verse 10, John says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation, it's only used four times in the New Testament, but what it means is to absorb wrath. It means to atone. It's what Jesus did as he atoned for sin, as he drew man and God together through his sacrifice, he became the propitiate. He became the one who took the wrath of God on himself for our sins. Question, what is it that hinders fellowship with God? The answer is simple, sin. Again, talking about the broadest definition of sin is is. And the basis for God's judgment as well. We've been talking about that in our studies in Romans. But anything that is short of God's holy perfection is sin. And and so when we look at the fact that people try to work their own way out to get to God, you can see that that's a fool's errand because there is no way that we can atone for our own sin if it's based on thoughts, words, and deeds over a lifetime. Not just since this morning, but over a lifetime, it's not possible. So fellowship with God was broken. Jesus had experienced unhindered fellowship with God from birth. He had no sin and sin blocks fellowship. He had no sin. He had been, he had enjoyed the presence of the father, the fullness of the spirit. Yes, The Holy Spirit came down when he was baptized, but that was to anoint him for his ministry, for his public ministry. Even before that, as a child, he enjoyed fellowship with God. He enjoyed the same fellowship that's available to us. Yes, in limited measure because we sin. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the down payment on heaven. He is an earnest that's given for what's to come when the presence of sin is taken out of the way. Suffice it to say, for now, the penalty for sin, for those who give their lives, who believe, choose to trust Christ, the penalty for sin is taken out of the way. The power of sin is broken in our lives. And the presence of sin in that day will be taken away. Praise God, I can't wait till I don't have this ongoing battle with this flesh, with this carcass that I have to haul around between now and then. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, he says, Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through us. In other words, we're his mouthpiece. He says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then he says, Why? He says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, this is the great exchange. God lays our sins on Christ and punishes them in him. And in Christ's obedient death, God credits Jesus' righteousness to us. Our sin on Christ, his righteousness on us. That's a deal you don't want to pass up. 
it is a, I've been in the advertising business for 40-some years, and it is what I would call a limited-time offer. This age is drawing to a close, and if you haven't done business with him at the cross, don't wait. That door is closing. But in order to accomplish this, this exchange that I'm talking about, there had to be some sort of a tearing in God himself. We don't understand it completely. But when Jesus cried out from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was alone. I submit to you that for the first time in his entire life, he was completely alone. The result would be a void that we don't have the ability to fathom, a darkness that we can't imagine, a striking aloneness as Jesus cried out from the cross. Staggering when you think about it. The fifth statement that Jesus made from the cross, I thirst. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. That's in John nineteen twenty-eight. Now, the apostle John links Jesus' statement, I thirst, to a fulfillment, the fulfillment of the prophetic word. And that's important. We'll look at that again in a little bit. In Psalm 22, that's the great messianic psalm of, of all of the psalms. I mean, it, I would love to just, and perhaps one year on Resurrection Sunday or whatever, that we'll go through Psalm 22 because it is packed. There are two huge passages in the Old Testament. Yeah, there are a lot of prophetic passages, but two that just, it's just like start to finish. It's like bam, 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 bam. They just go through it. And that's Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 the person and the work of Christ outlined clearly hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. In Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, we read, my strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Psalm 22 goes on to complete the picture of the crucifixion, by the way. Don't have time to go there. But at least 20 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled during the 24 hours that were surrounding Jesus' death. And what's the purpose in that? Well, by highlighting the Old Testament scriptures and how they were fulfilled throughout Jesus' crucifixion, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was demonstrating that everything was happening according to God's predetermined plan. This wasn't just unfolding kind of happenstance. It's just how it went that day. No, this was planned. Right up to when Jesus rode into town the week before, he forced their hand. The religious leaders were incensed when he presented himself as Messiah to the nation. And that's when they said, we've got to get this guy out of the way. Why would this be planned? Why would John go to such length? Because John goes to great lengths at the Gospel of John to lay these things out and to tie it to prophecy. Simply, in John's words himself, that you may believe. As we looked at when, when Peter was standing there on Pentecost and talking about Jesus and, and that he was demonstrated, he was attested to you by signs and wonders and miracles. They were attesting signs. They were there. It's the supernatural, the metaphysical, it's not there for, so that we can have a Holy Ghost talent show. It's not, that's not what it is at all. They're there to point us to Jesus, that if he had the power to bend nature, if he had the power to do signs that violate the laws of physics, which he owns, by the way, then he had the power to forgive sins. 
The same thing here is that when God tells the future ahead of time, which he does and he did, he does it so that when it comes about, we can go, wow, maybe that message is true. Maybe that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe I've had it wrong. Or maybe I need to pay closer attention. John says that you may believe. Notice too, it's, it's, it's not until this point that Jesus speaks of his own physical suffering. And, and folks, he lived as a man and he suffered as a man in order that he could identify with suffering humanity. We suffer, we go through times of suffering. And, and he relates to us. He understands the frailty of being a human because he took on humanity. We observe that as he suffered, he endured this suffering as a man. And he took the full impact of the crucifixion. In Mark chapter 15, verse 23, they, they had offered Jesus, it was a mild narcotic drink. It was wine mixed with myrrh. And the Roman soldiers used to take this mixture themselves when they had been in battle and, and it, because it was a painkiller. They offered it to Jesus and he said no. But John tells us he accepted another kind of drink. He took sour wine vinegar. I don't know if you guys ever use wine vinegar on your salad, but it's kind of like that. It's not intoxicating. It's just fermented uh, stuff. They lifted that to him on a hyssop branch. But And when he said, I thirst, yes, he would be, he would be so dehydrated at this point from blood loss and from the things he was enduring. And yet he took this drink in order to moisten his parched throat and his lips because his tongue would have been swollen. He would have been in bad shape at this point. He's near death, but he did it so that with a loud voice, he could declare the sixth word that we look at here. Statement number six, it is finished. He cried that out from the cross the moment he got that drink. It, it was He did it so that he could wet his mouth so that he could speak because he would be becoming, be becoming unintelligible in his speech at this point. And he cried out from the cross, it is finished. This, uh, this statement, folks, it was a cry of victory. Now there's one Greek word that is, that is translated three words in English. It is finished. It's the word tetelestai. And let me, I'll give you, and this is kind of an abstract example, but, but just, if you've ever watched sports, um, you see the little teleprompter with all the games that are going on that day. They're, they're not the ones on, that you're watching right then, but, and I'm not a sports guy, but I, I've noticed this before. It'll give the scores, it'll, and then, and then every now and then it's, it'll say final. In other words, that game's over, it's done, nothing is gonna, it, it's set. That's to tell us die. What it means is it's final. It's done. You can't change it. You can't do anything with it. It's history. It's finished. That's what he's saying. The sixth statement, it's victory. He's saying, I have done it. So the question becomes, then what is finished? And I'm going to give you four things that Jesus finished on the cross. The first and most important is salvation. Jesus had finished that which the Father had given him to finish, to accomplish. In John 17, 4, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. This is the great high priestly prayer where Jesus in the garden, hours before these events, he's crying out to the Father. 
And he says, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you have given me to do. It was finished. His work was to provide the singular way of salvation for humanity. That was it. That's the work. There is no other way that a man or a woman can be saved except through the finished work of Christ. It's done. Do you believe it? That's the question. By living his entire life without sin, Jesus was able to become the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer there, he's relating a lot of the things that pertain to the gospel to Judaism and how they were fulfilled, that Judaism was a shadow of the fulfillment that we would enjoy in Christ. What he's talking about in chapter 7 is the high priesthood of Christ, that Jesus is our high priest and he is so much better than an earthly high priest because the earthly high priest would have to go in and offer sacrifices for himself to get cleansed before he could offer sacrifices for the people. And that's just how it was because it was all about purity. It was all about being sinless and positionally sinless for that moment would be what the priest had to do. But here in in chapter 7, verse 27 of Hebrews, the writer says, Jesus does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sin, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's finished. Your sin, my sin, has been atoned for. Past, present, future. Some of you know Stacy's father went to heaven this week, my father-in-law, on Monday. I'm trying not to get emotional here. I had a chance to talk with him last week, the week before last. And and one of the things I told him is I said, Pop, I know you have a lot of guilt because he had, he struggled with receiving God's forgiveness. And this is probably a word for somebody here today. If you wrestle with that, Give it to him. And what I told him is I said, you know, unless the Lord miraculously intervenes at some point, you're headed for heaven pretty quickly, pretty soon, Pop. I want to tell you something that at memorial services, one of the things they talk about is that they want that person to rest in peace. And I said, you can have rest and peace. Now, while you're alive. Yeah, I miss him. Uh, his wife Shirley, my wife Stacy, miss him grieving. Yet yeah, it's been a, a peaceful and difficult week. All the same, we were talking about it last night. It's been a very peaceful and difficult week because he did know the Lord, he wrestled with guilt. One of the things I shared with him is that in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah says that part of the work that Jesus finished at the cross was that he was made a guilt offering. Do you pack around guilt? Give it to him. It's part of why he died. You don't have to pack it around. 
You can allow him to cleanse you. You can allow him to take it. The second thing we look at as to what Jesus intended when, when he said it is finished is the prophetic word, prophecy. As I mentioned, there were a number of prophecies fulfilled just around surrounding his death. The second thing that accomplished that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross was the fulfillment of prophecy. The predicted Messiah had come as God had promised. Yes, Israel didn't like who he selected and the way he did it. They had a whole different idea at this time. But the Savior, the suffering servant predicted centuries before had now atoned for sin and accomplished God's promised redemption of mankind. They looked forward to this. We look back. The third thing that he accomplished was victory over Satan. First John tells us, for this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And when Jesus hung on that cross, yeah, Satan did everything he could to get him up on that cross. He wanted to get him out of the way. And yet what was accomplished there was, as it says all the way back in Genesis, the very first prophecy that we see during the fall of man, he says, the serpent will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. And that Satan was crushed at the cross. The dominion over the earth that man through his sin had handed over to the devil was now won back. The authority Satan had had been vanquished. The victory had been won. You say, well, why is the earth still a mess? When Jesus returns, he'll take hold of the victory that he won over Satan at the cross. He was defeated. Uh, I like to say the earth is in escrow. <laughs> The fourth thing was that Jesus' own suffering was finished. The fourth and final reason that Jesus said it is finished is regard, with regard to his own suffering. He had spent over, think about it, guys. He spent over 30 years upon the earth living among sinful men, enduring the effects of the fall. He was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet without sin is what God's word, what the Bible tells us. We're also told that he emptied himself. He took and he set aside not his divinity, but his divine prerogative in becoming a man so that he would be able to taste humanity and to experience humanity as a man, as as much as you or I. As a result, he suffered from the self-imposed limitations of that existence. The creator of the universe, think about it, the creator of the universe stepped from eternity into time, took on humanity and entered his own creation in order to be subject to humiliation, suffering, torment, and death at the hands of his creation. I wouldn't have done it that way, but I'm not God. I think it's remarkable that he would go to this length for you and for me. He did all of it for the great love which he has for us. And it's finished. It was on the cross that the gulf between man and God due to sin, was bridged. It was on the cross that the righteous demands of the law of God were satisfied. It was on the cross that fellowship with God, that which had been forfeit in the Garden of Eden, was regained. 
It was on the cross that Satan and his demonic forces were ultimately and utterly defeated. It was on the cross that my eternal salvation and yours was purchased. The only condition he makes on that is ask. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. Step into his kingdom. This is the work that Jesus finished at the cross. The seventh statement, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Jesus had told his disciples in John chapter 10, he said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Dropping down in the same chapter in verse 17, he says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This is fascinating to me because from this, we realize that Jesus had to purposely dismiss his spirit. It couldn't be taken from him. He wasn't dying from his wounds. He was dying because his work was finished. Unless he desired to die, he wouldn't have had to. But because he was willing, he chose to die. Upon making this final statement, he gave up his spirit and his life left his body. Three days later, Jesus would, as we know, rise from the dead. That's what we remember, what we celebrate today, signifying that death would hold no power over him and that his sacrifice had been acceptable to the Father. The Corinthian church, years later, some 20-some years later, Paul wrote a letter, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in a Greek town called Corinth. And Corinth was having a lot of trouble. They were having a lot of problems. <laughs> and I love the fact that 1 Corinthians is largely a corrective letter. It's a letter of correction. He's setting a lot of things straight that were out of whack. And they were wrestling with the resurrection. Word had come to Paul that some were doubting. And well, you know, you can be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. <laughs> and Paul has some things to say about that. And I want to touch on them here as we wrap up this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, the apostle writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He's not saying this is my opinion. He's saying, according to the word of God, Christ died for our sins. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Not my opinion, according to the word of God. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the 12, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present and when he had written this. But some have fallen asleep. Sleep, as we've seen in the book of Romans, is a euphemism for physical death. After that he was seen by James, and then by all of the apostles, and the last of all, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. Because the apostle, the apostle Paul wasn't part of the original 12. He came later. But we know that when he went off to Arabia, that the Lord Jesus came and instructed him personally. That's what we're told in God's word. 
The resurrection remains one of the most attested and reliable events in history. Uh, it was attested to by hundreds of people, hundreds of eyewitnesses. In verses 17 to 19 in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes uh, some assertions here about what happens if you take the resurrection out of Christianity. Verse 17, he says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. That's heavy because he died for sin. He rose as a result of his sacrifice being accepted by the father. He says, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, if, if they're dead, fallen asleep, they're going to stay dead. There is no resurrection. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Those are profound words. Those are heavy words. Where are you at with the resurrection of Christ that this man, God, man, 100% God, 100% man, that he truly walked the earth. These aren't fairy tales. These aren't just fun Bible stories. These are real events. Do you believe it? Do you believe that this guy was dead for three days and that he came back to life? That's the resurrection. But you know know something, folks? The Bible says he is the firstborn of the resurrection. What does that mean? That means by simple faith in the atoning work that he accomplished, that he finished at the cross, that you follow him in resurrection. The reason why it's been a peaceful week in our home this week is because we know that Stacy's father is part of the resurrection, that he's followed. We know where he resides. There's no more important issue in a person's life than where they stand when it comes to the person and the work of Jesus, the Messiah. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And with that, we looked earlier at the two thieves who were crucified with Christ. They were dying because of what they had done. And when we overlay that with our lives, folks, I've mentioned before, you don't want justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. Justice is hell. No, you want grace. You want mercy. You'll find those at the cross and in the resurrection. Both of those thieves were condemned and they were condemned rightly as we are. The question is, which thief are you? It's never too late. If you don't know Christ this morning, give your life to him. Ask him to come in and I guarantee you on the basis of his divinely inspired word, he will. And he will begin to change you from the inside. You don't have to get your act together. He says, come as you are. Come as you are. Come to Jesus. If you're in a place where perhaps you've been flirting with sin or you've allowed things to to drift in your life, come home, come home. He loves you. He not only died for you, he lives for you. And he wants more than anything a relationship with people that choose. Those are the choices before.